Welcome back, everyone. This is David Bank with Impact Alpha. I'm here with Morgan Simon, the managing director of Candide Group and co-founder of the nonprofit Transform Finance. Morgan, welcome. Thank you so much, David. Uh, I'm so excited about your new book, Real Impact, The New Economics of Social Change. Um, tell us how you came to write it. Sure. Um, impact investment, which as most people on this podcast would know, you know, the practice of investing not just for profit, but also social benefit, it's the trillion dollar trend that still most people have never heard of. Um, and there's the opportunity for it to do a tremendous amount of good in the world if we can make sure it achieves its highest potential. But we also need to learn to become more conscious consumers of impact investment and not just assume that investment is social because we're told so, um, but because it's really making verifiable systemic change and holding true to social justice values. And I, I recognize that at this point, I've, I've been working in the field for over 17 years. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with endowments, foundations, individuals, looking at about over 150 billion over that time, that I had pretty unique exposure and experience to not only share with investors, um, but with anyone inspired to leverage society's resources towards social change. So while my experience moving large portfolios into impact is directly applicable for any number of investors, from individuals to um, endowments and foundations, it also raises many larger questions about the role of money in society, which deserves to be a topic of conversation amongst global citizens looking to build a more just economy. And I feel like that is a very large group of people who have not gotten to be part of the impact investment conversation. And my hope is that this book can certainly be helpful to establish impact investors who are trying to deepen their impact or people who are curious to join the conversation, but also to the next generation of people who are just really excited about social change and particularly given the incredible needs of the present day and, and want to understand how to leverage finance in a way that can be effective and not, not intimidating. Um, so that's hopefully the, the gift that I'm able to, to bring to the community. Well, it's interesting you you throw off uh, you know uh, uh, moved 150 billion dollars uh, you know f fairly um, blithely. I don't, I'm not sure there's a lot of social justice activists who can say that. On the other hand, I'm going to um, say influenced <laughs> rather than blithely moved. But, but yes, that, that is that is a, a legitimate number. I'll stand behind and, that. Um, and then on the on the on the other hand, uh, you know, there's not a lot of finance uh, folks who have the social justice and social activism um, experience uh, that you do. So you're actually spanning, uh, you know, spanning two worlds. It seems. I think that's right, and I think it's it's two worlds that desperately need each other, um, and that could do so, so much better work both sides if they were able to really be in that conversation together. That I think sometimes. In the social investment world, there's the assumption that you can kind of just put the social on top, that if you're reasonably educated, you're reading the New York Times consistently, right, that it's easy enough to kind of intuit what are the needs from a social and environmental perspective. And I, and I think to some degree, there, there's some validity in that when we think about things like climate change that hopefully we can agree we need to address and that there's legitimate investment strategies to do so. But we're never going to capture the depth of nuance um, in terms of how to do these things effectively if we are not taking as much direction as possible from the grassroots activists who are living this reality day in and day out and really know best what their needs are and the needs of their natural environment. And then on the flip side, there's a lot of activists who I think often don't want to touch the themes in finance and investment, one in part because they really have been culprits of so many terrible things in the world. Um, 
And at the same time, there's so much opportunity there. And yes, sometimes it involves touching themes or partners that we're not used to, we're not comfortable with, but the potential for impact is so massive if we're able to change the way that the global economy functions. So that's really the opportunity that I think is available to everyone, um, both to impact investors and to activists. Um, and that's a lot of the personal work that I've been doing over the last decade. And then also the work that Transform Finance as a nonprofit has been doing and creating and bridging those communities. Well, so maybe examples would be helpful here. So, you know, maybe there's an investment you've made or, or an investment you know about that did have a transformative effect, that did mobilize capital for something for, and that did take into account, as you say, the voices and the needs and the concerns of, of the people on the ground. I mean, what's, a, what's, what's, a, what's one you're super excited about? Let's start there. The summary of what I'm excited about, I think, is really ensconced in the transform finance principles, which are three principles that I developed largely in part through a working group of global activists uh, that convened for about a year. So it's it's interesting how much conversation it can take to distill down the three principles. And that's some of the story that I tell in the book of really how I built those bridges with activists and, and what was the outcome of those bridges. Um, and those three principles, without any further ado, um, so engaging communities in design, governance, and ownership of enterprises. I think that ownership piece being especially uh, critical because that's what ultimately changes the balance of asset accumulation and power in society. Um, the second is the idea of non-extraction, that impact investments should add more value than they extract. I, I really hope that that's the type of uh, principle that would relate at a heartfelt level, right, that no one wants to extract value from people, and, and particularly for historically disadvantaged communities. And then the third piece um, is balancing risk and return between investors, entrepreneurs, and communities. And that oftentimes the kind of divine right of capital of assuming that our risk should be uh, reduced as much as possible without thinking about the risk on the other parties, or are they getting their kind of fair share um, in that process, kind of gets left out of the conversation. Um, so there winds up being a lot of impact investments that are better, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're fair in terms of how they're constructed. So when I look at the types of investments that get me really excited that fulfill those sorts of principles, one of them is a group called Uncommon Cacao. This is perfect because this is cross-promotion because we've had Emily Stone on the on the program with an interview with her. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll point people to the Uncommon Cacao interview and, and uh, tell us why that, why that uh, strikes you. Sure. Uncommon Cacao... What they found is that it's very easy to just pay farmers a little bit more, make them a little better off, um, but still fundamentally keep them in a relationship that's extractive, um, where they're receiving a, a, a tiny percentage of the ultimate value that's being created. And what the company did by being able to harness the trend of direct trade that we've seen in things like coffee and the success of firms like Blue Bottle, to be able to create that direct trade market for cacao where they increase the quality of cacao by working with farmers and then are able to give them a much higher price. Um, and then beyond just a better price, a fair price. And part of that is that they have implemented a margin cap, um, which ensures that the majority of the value of a transaction has to go to farmers, or at least uh, to the farming associations. And then there's also a farmer's fund that is able to support some of the collective action projects that they're looking to form. Um, and then finally, the opportunity for some ownership in that. Um, so it's really kind of incorporating those principles of fairness throughout. And as the company, I'm, I'm 
I'm sure mentioned in, in their um, interview with Impact Alpha as well, um, radical transparency is a value that they hold very dear. And the idea that farmers can better advocate for their rights and, and consumers, quite frankly, can help advocate if they really know what's going on. Um, so I think it's an example of a company that is trying to have really systemic impact um, to really reform the way that a whole industry is working beyond just sort of supporting um, a smaller group of people. And at the same time, is very committed to non-extraction um, and balancing risk and return between the different parties in the process. That's, a, that's a, it seems like a really important point, especially as more money. I mean, I think we've been tracking the both deal sizes and fund sizes in impact investing moving up, you know, quite um, dramatically, say, even in the last year so that, you know, TPG says it's raising two billion dollars and Bain raised 400 million dollars. And these are first funds and others are raising, you know, crossing the billion dollar mark and the deal sizes are getting bigger as well. And in that context, you know, they're trying to make representations to their investors of, of returns. Um, those returns come from the businesses on the ground that they're that they're supporting. So so it's got to come from somewhere, as you say. And if that becomes extractive, then I think your point is, you know, you may not be serving the the impact um, goal that that you set out to set out to get. Right. That's right. And I also think extractive should not be confused with not profitable, right? So the idea is that you want to generate return for everyone uh, within that supply chain or within that stakeholder community. Uh, and that I think the other that there's a lot of compelling data on when you give people the opportunity to participate in the economic success of a venture, guess what? They perform better. I mean, that shouldn't be so shocking. And I, I think what's uh, what's kind of humorous to me um, in your evaluating a traditional tech investment, you would always make sure that there's sufficient options available to be able to attract the highest quality talent, right? That you would be very concerned if a founder hadn't left sufficient equity in the options pool. And I think the equivalent is, you know, why would we think that that motivation would be any different for any other type of worker? Um, so creating those opportunities has shown incredible um, increases in efficiency. Some studies have shown as efficient as the introduction of the computer, right? Which is very, very compelling. Um, so I think there's also an element of um, how do you align stakeholders for everyone's success that you're really able to tap through that principle um, and that ideally just creates more value for everybody. Well, okay, so now give us the counter example. What is there, is there, is there an investment or is there a project that, um, you have that, you know, might have been the darling of, of impact that you found uh, some fault with because it didn't actually adhere to these three principles? Sure. So um, one of the examples that we talk about sometimes is a project in Mexico that, that really should have been an impact investor's dream. Uh, the idea of creating um, the largest wind plantation in all of Latin America that would provide a significant portion of energy for the country and help kind of get them off of the fossil fuel dependency that's, you know, that causes harm for the environment and then also for the national economy can prove very challenging. Um, and this was being financed by a combination of development banks and Mexican government and foreign corporations and um, sort of was the opportunity to be able to support renewable energy development uh, and in one of the poorest states of the country in Oaxaca. So the idea was that you could also create some income generating opportunities for indigenous people. And that's the sort of thing, if you just saw that story on a one pager, that looks fantastic, right? I would buy into that story. But then as it turned out, the farmers were getting so poorly compensated in the process to the point where they're pretty much having their land taken from them or being offered 
you know, $50 a year and, and discovering that from a margins perspective, it's just the tiniest piece of the value that's being extracted from their community. You started to have community members putting up roadblocks and signs that said, stop the intimidation, hostility, and violence from not oil, not gas, wind energy, right? And I think those are three words, intimidation, hostility, and violence, that as an impact investor, I never want attached to me, right? Um, and it seems like it could have been so easily avoided if there had been a much more thoughtful process in terms of how to engage the local community and, and to respect their intelligence a bit more, that they might notice uh, that the project is more profitable than $50 a hectare would, would imply. Um, and, and I think the other really tragic story in that, you know, beyond the fact that the investors really lost their shirts when they had to stop the project, you know, hundreds of millions that have been invested, um, but that it means the country didn't get wind energy. And that is a tremendous loss from an environmental perspective. So I don't want the, you know, the fact that the project got canceled it's not this, you know, victory for civil society. The victory would be, and this is the model that um, a group called Grupo Yansa um, is trying to create out of Mexico, which is that you could have a community-owned wind farm that could still operate at utility scale, um, but make sure that that benefit really attributes to that community and then by extension to the entire country. I also want to kind of note within that um, that I think community engagement is also a form of risk reduction um, because when you have that, that sort of form of license to operate, but that goes beyond CSR to actual benefit to communities, this just serves everyone. Um, it serves the security of the investment and then serves the ultimate impact. So it seems so just to tie it back, it seems like you're yes, you're making both sides, the social activists and the and the finance types uncomfortable. But you but there does sound like there's a way out, which is is actually requires both of those stakeholders to really engage with each other and many stakeholders to engage with each other. That's right. I mean, I think um in general, the, the moral of the story is not that we have just tons of bad actors running around doing terrible things. It's that we have lots of really thoughtful, smart people on both sides of these conversations that could be learning and growing more together. Um, and that if we're able to harness that collective power, we could go so much further. Um, so ironically, it's a, it's a critique that um, is really wrapped up in a lot of kumbaya <laughs> as well. Um, in terms of feeling um, really optimistic that there's a lot of good that that can be done. Um, and that's why I really felt that this book was timely. Um, as you're saying, as we're starting to see incredible scaling of impact investment, that if, if anything like the J.P. Morgan projections are correct, it's going to be 10 times as much as official development aid. And that means that the way that development happens on a global scale is shifting rapidly under our feet. And if we don't start to get a handle on making sure that we're really including civil society um, and that we're really being thoughtful about what impact is, we could wind up investing in a lot of the wrong things. Um, but I, I think it's early enough that we can avoid that. Um, I think it's early enough for us to be proactive and, and need to think a little bit differently about how we spend our time and our resources to build the types of um, even beyond professional networks, but personal practices and solidarity that it takes to really do this work effectively. Well, tell us about what you're doing. What is Candide Group? Um, Candide Group is building 100% for impact portfolios with really deep social justice values. So we try to find, follow the transform finance principles as much as possible. Um, we recognize that that's always going to be on a spectrum. 
in the context of filling out a full portfolio. So in working you know, across um, cash and fixed income and public equities and private investments. And we do all the private investing um, in-house. And then we work with other managers in terms of other asset classes. Um, and we work um, for two asset bases, high investments, um, for the last five years. And, and many folks may know us, uh, myself and my partner, and they are men and me as Pi Investments. So this is a, a rebrand as Candide Group. Um, given that the last uh, close to two years, we've also been working with the Libra Foundation in supporting their portfolio. So that's the two asset bases that we work with. Um, we're really limited to those two. We're not seeking other clients um, and just really love the opportunity to, to go deep with those two families and be able to try to really show by example um, what impact investment can do. So that was part of, for me, my career transition five years ago. I was the founding CEO of Tonic and had wanted to show that you could do a more social justice um, than launch Transform Finance with Andrea Armeni to really help transform the field and do that organizing work. And then I was hoping as an investor to really build um, some model portfolios that could show people that you could really stand true to your values while still implementing 100% for impact approach. Um, and I'm proud to say that um, Harvard Business School did a case study on us um, last year um, that's now being taught in various business schools on the how do you get to 100% through that sort of impact approach. Um, so we're excited to be able to, to kind of share that experience out with others. 100% is becoming a kind of rallying cry. We did have uh, Lisa Pritzker-Simmons and Ian Simmons from Blue Haven Initiative on recently, and, 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 and they're aiming at 100%. Is that a feasible goal? It absolutely is. Um, so in the last five years, we've moved Pi Investments to just about there. Um, and I guess the one thing that I would say is that we still really have to be conscious consumers about what um, impact is, right? Because I think you could very, very easily move your portfolio into things that are you know, doing something mildly good, but are not really going to address structural inequalities and challenges within society. So that is the caveat, that I think there is still more work to be done to make sure that those investments are ever more impactful. Um, and I often say, you know, we don't want the best to be the enemy of the good to, uh, I think one of the things that happens sometimes, it's pretty hilarious, is that a foundation will be debating whether or not they wanna move into impact investment and they're concerned that it's not quite impactful enough. So, okay, we'll just stay in Walmart and Chevron, right? Of the idea of, you know, just accepting the status quo puts you so far out of your value set. Doing something is certainly better than nothing. Um, but at the same time, we don't, want the good to be the enemy of the best in that we don't want to kind of stop being content at good um, when we know that there's still more out there that can be done and more models that need to be innovated on. So that's kind of the, the hunger that I feel I still carry. Um, and in the meantime, still want to make sure to be supporting a number of the managers who are really kind of pushing the boundaries and, and doing the best they can within the confines of the current market. So 100% isn't even the end of the road. There's always a there's always another hill to climb after that. It sounds like. Um, what would you give? You you gave us your three um, your three takeaways on uh, from the transform finance work, um, and maybe you you'd want to restate them. But I was going to ask you if if you had three things people would take away from the book, what would they be? Sure. So I think um, from the book, I would say that impact investment affects us all 
that whether you know we have 200 or 200 million in our bank account, that there are opportunities to participate and that we actually need to be really active stewards of this movement in order to make sure it's going to maximize its impact. So kind of recognizing that we're all connected to resources one way or another, and it's sort of how do we leverage that for maximum impact. The second goes back to being the conscious consumer of impact investment. I think about how long it took for me, and I still probably spend a good two minutes in the grocery store of um, cage-free egg versus the cage-free organic versus the free range versus the pasture raised, right? Um, and you can think it's silly and semantic, but then you also learn that cage-free means that you maybe still need, never get any uh, sunshine or grass in your life as a chicken. Um, and pasture-raised means that you might, I believe, if I'm getting it right now, have access to acres and acres of grassland, right? And that is a very different life. So I think in the same way that we recognize that these labels have meaning and that our kind of impact as a consumer is critical, I think we need to have that same sort of discriminatory eye um, and then I would finally kind of offer, right, the transform finance principles are hopefully a cheat sheet for that of how to um, really address being a more um, accountable investor. And it's not that we need to have the perfect answer, but I found in the context of diligence, just talking through with a company, what does non-extraction mean to you? And how do you feel comfortable that you have appropriately balanced risk and return between the stakeholders? How have you engaged your relevant stakeholders in design, governance, and ownership of the enterprise, just asking those questions can really change the dynamic of a conversation and kind of help collectively us as investors and then alongside entrepreneurs and, and communities think about how we can build something more together. So there's no one right answer to those questions. Um, I think it's just that we have to keep asking questions, right? So we keep asking questions as opposed to sort of just accepting whatever we're told social might be. Terrific, Morgan. That gives us all a lot to think about. The book is provocative and, and exciting, interesting uh, read, and I hope it does great. Thanks for joining us, and thank you for all the good work you're doing. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts these days. And tell others about it by leaving a rating and comment. For more on Impact Investing, be sure to subscribe to Impact Alpha's daily email newsletter at impactalpha.com. Thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks for listening to Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking again soon.